This episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the Seton Home Study School. To find out if Seton is right for your family, go to seatonhome.org. That's seatonhome.org. Hello, friends, and welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each and every week, except for the ones where we don't. And apologies for that, but we are back off of a two-week break. And back from vacation, finally, is my co-host. I think we can go with co-host since you're insisting on I taking the lead, but I'm not ready to take full you? responsibility for this. Tell them who you who are. am I? Who am I to, to give myself soul status? My co-host. Okay, stop, 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 stop. Co-founder stop of The it, Pillar. Stop it, stop it. It's, it's enough. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. You got to give Got to give them, got to go in, got to get in there. You know, you got to tell them who you are and what the show is and what you're doing here. And now we've done that. I know. But what's fun for me about these occasional times when you try to make me host the show is you just can't leave it alone. (laughs) You'd like to, but. That was brutal. It wasn't brutal. It was, people were enjoying it. People, people were enjoying the different change of pace. They said, wait, this is different. This is new. This is something I haven't heard before. I'm going to share this podcast with all of my friends because something's changed here. Something has changed here. I'm going to listen to this show. I'm a, I'm a loyal listener of the show and something I like that it's being mixed up. And yes, I'm going to share with all my friends. I'm going to continue to share the Pillar podcast and I'm going to go to seatonhome.org to show the Pillars advertisers that I that investing in the Pillar podcast is a valuable proposition. That's what people were thinking. They clicked off the podcast while you were talking and they went to seatonhome.org perhaps. I don't know. Hello. I, you you are so particular. I, <laughs> uh, About some things I really am. Yes. It fascinates me. Uh, great. Well, Ed, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about, um, I was out last week, uh, uh, and, um, I missed so many things that happened and we didn't get a chance to talk about them, but we have new Cardinals and we have Synod on Synodality delegates and we have a new prefect for the congregate doc, dicastery for the doctrine of the faith, which used to be called congregation for the doctrine of the faith, which used to be called sacred congregation of the Holy office. We have many things, and I'd like to talk about them uh, with you. Yes, so much really is happening. Big... This is yes. what's happening right now, Ed. What's happening right now is like it's it's a flurry of appointments ahead of the August break. It's 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 going in. It's going hard into summertime right now. Is what's happening because the Holy See is getting ready to go on August break, and the Pope is just firing on all of the cylinders he's got um, to get ready. It's it's remarkable. I mean, honestly, I felt for you a little bit because as all this was going on and you were on vacation and and actually having to be on vacation because you didn't have mobile phone service or internet or anything like that, I did think this is this is the reason, like this is the nightmare scenario about why I don't and you don't tend to go on vacation is because the fear is that the week that you take off, everything will happen. And <laughs> it did. And it was kind of funny. Everything um, happened. And it occurred to me when I got back and learned that many things had happened that maybe when I went somewhere with no cell phone service and all of that, I should have given you the landline at which you could contact me. I would uh, not have used it. Would you have used it? That's what I'm curious. Would you have bat phoned no. me? No, not at all. Absolutely not. I if if the only reason I would have interrupted an actual vacation you were taking is if it was conclave time. That is really the only thing that I would consider to be. Yeah, and actually as regards conclave time, because you and I have discussed this many times, what we have our conclave go bags ready to go, and we have our plan, and and um, 
We know right where we'll stay and all of this stuff. We have our, we're, we're ready. But as much as we've discussed it, the Cardinals, according to, um, according to, um, the particular law for the election of a pontiff, which is called now University Dominici Gregis, have how long to get to Rome after the death of a pope? I think it's like a good two weeks, like is yeah, it 15, they have 15 days. 15 days to get to yeah. Rome after the death of a pope. So, as much as we sort of think we're going to like, you know, be just like drop our ice cream cone right there in the street and get on an airplane, we probably will take a couple of days to make our way to Rome as well because the Cardinals have 15 days to get there and then you got to roll through a whole conclave. Well, I, no, I, I think we'll be there the next day, if not the same day. Because um, it's, it's true, they've got 15 days to assemble for the conclave, but you've got the pre-conclave general consistory meetings, which are, you know, for which, which are everyone, they're not open to the public, but they're, you know, they're not super secret locked right. away. They're just, they happen and everyone gets to go to those who's a cardinal, not just even the ones voting are, age under. who aren't going to get to vote, even those who are over 80. Yeah. So the over 80s get to go in those and those are important sort of talking shops and tone setting things. And, you know, that's where the, where the early sort of elbows get rubbed and things. Um, but of course, before all of that, you've got a papal funeral, which is kind of a big deal. So no, I yeah. think we'll be there right away. Um, so we've got that. We have, of course, we have, and for anyone who doesn't know, we've talked about on the show ad nauseum before, when when a cardinal is, like when does a cardinal become a cardinal? Uh, and there's an explainer we did this week that explains that, you know, the new 21 guys, and I think 18 of them are of voting age, um, they they will not become cardinals. Everyone starts calling them cardinal designate, which makes me very angry. It is a stupid made up term. It's ugly. Uh, if you really want to say cardinal elect because you're afraid that they will be offended that you don't reference them as about to become a cardinal. I think you're being insecure because probably the only reason you're talking about them is because they're about to become a cardinal. So they know that, you know, it's fine, but cardinal elect, if you must, because you know, they are elected to the position by the one who competent to make such an election, which is the Pope. Um, but anyway, the cardinals elect, uh, do not attain their full voting rights or the rights and privileges of a cardinal or the style of your eminence or anything else like that until the actual consistory, uh, which will take place in September. So everyone can just hold their horses on that for a few weeks. And we've got an explainer if you want to read that. Um, but JD, I, I, they, okay, so there was a lot that happened. Bishop Alvarez was in and out of prison for like 24 Bishop hours. Bishop Alvarez which you, was in and out of prison. Man, Ed, Bishop Alvarez, I'm just going to editorialize here because that's what we do. Bishop Alvarez is a hero, man. I mean, like, break this down for me. Not in a summary so way. So here's what like, we put together while you this? were away. Yeah. Is is that um, the only people who have seen Bishop Alvarez while he's in prison, so far as we've been able to ascertain, are family members who could visit him in jail and Cardinal Brenes. Um, now, Cardinal... Yes. Now, when... Bishop Alvarez, by the way... Is uh, is the is the Nicaraguan Bishop of Matagalpa who earlier this year was sentenced to twenty six years in prison for the crime of effectively being a Catholic and being open about that in Nicaragua? Yes. So as near as we pieced together, what happened was this: it was determined and expected by the Nicaraguan authorities under the Ortega regime that they would let him out. He's been in prison since February. And that he would get on a plane and leave the country. That he would go into exile as a lot of other um, clerics. A lot of people have. A lot of clerics have gone into exile. A lot of them are here yes. in the United States. But was the Holy See advocating for this? Like, was the Holy See lobbying so, through back channels or third parties to get the Nicaraguan government to let him out of prison so that he could go to the Vatican City State or something like that? I mean, what was... So, okay. So, I'll, I'll, in years we could figure out what happened was 
the Holy See, I, we can't say whether the Holy See was advocating with the Ortega regime to get him out of prison so that he could go into exile. The plan or the expectation seems to have been that he'd have got on a plane to Rome in the first instance and then gone somewhere else, possibly the Dominican Republic, possibly Miami. We don't know. But I talked to people around um, both the Archdiocese of Miami and the USCCB, and they had no inkling or expectation of him arriving. So whatever, if there was a plan, it was close hold. Um, nobody was was thinking beyond him apparently getting on a plane to Rome. But nobody thought to actually check with Bishop Alvarez, um, it seems. Cardinal Brennan has said he absolutely did not like give any kind of exhortation or strike any kind of deal and he wasn't any sort of middleman in all of this that you know he he had nothing to do with it so it looks to me like this really was alvarez didn't know this was coming i mean assuming cardinal brennan is shooting straight on that and there's no reason to believe he isn't um he really was just like let out of prison and they said okay you're you're under house arrest and you know then the phone started ringing it's like okay so you're gonna go into exile right he said no I i wasn't going to do that when you put me on trial, I'm not going to do it now. What are you crazy? But you said the Holy, did the Holy See advocate for this? We did hear from people close to the secretary of state that the secretary of state was encouraging him strongly to consider getting on a plane. Uh, they didn't order him. They didn't say the Pope wants you to do this. They didn't say you must, you should, you have to. They simply said, you know, this this is an idea that merits your strong consideration and we would fully support you if you chose to do that and you might consider that to be a good and wise and prudent thing to do at this point and anyway he was having none of it because he what i loved about it was he turned around he presented a list of demands to the government and basically said i will only not go back to prison if i stay in the country if you restore my rights as a citizen if you unfreeze the bank accounts of all of the catholics and release other clerics right yeah, it, uh, restore all of the you know bank accounts of the Catholic institutions of his diocese and let my priest out of jail. Like, the absolute brass pair on this dude. I, he's out, Bishop Alvarez is an absolute badger. I mean, this guy is not having any of it, and he just is not budging an inch. So they put so him yeah, back. He's, yeah. Because he um, wouldn't, they wouldn't agree to his crazy condition, so they put him back. Here's a question that I have been wondering about. So... This Alvarez thing happened, and then right after that, Pope Francis named 21 cardinals. Yeah. Ed, I wish that the pontiff had made bishop... And look, I'm not the pontiff. But how cool would it have been if the pope had made Bishop Alvarez um, a, a cardinal? Okay, now I'm going to... This is pure speculation. We're we're in the realm just of us shooting the breeze we're, here. That's what we do here. We have a great Catholic conversation. And I think we're a conversation. Cool if bishop Alvarez was a cardinal because precisely because he would have been... A John Fisher type situation. Yeah, I mean, it would have escalated the profundity of his choice. I mean, this guy is choosing to be in prison in order to be close to his people and in order to witness to the uh, moral depravity of his government. It's 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 probably, in my view, Bishop Alvarez is probably like the most profound witness of Episcopal courage today. I mean, I, I you know, just what has unfolded over the past year and what's really cool is how much of it we've been able to report like from on the ground but vis-a-vis Edgar Latin American correspondent but what has unfolded unfolded over the past year is not just a guy who was taken up and is in prison but a guy who has like consistently chosen this path of this this like via dolorosa this path of the cross as a witness of christian courage as a as an acceptance of a kind of suffering and persecution for the sake of the gospel that I find extraordinary. Because, look, it's now clear, if Bishop Alvarez effectively 
recanted his position advocating for the freedom of the church to proclaim the gospel, he'd be he he could be in Miami right now eating turf and turf, you know, and he's not, or he could be in Rome right now, and he's not doing that. He he wants to be the bishop of his place, even if he's in prison. It's extraordinary. It is extraordinary, and I agree with you entirely. It's heroic. Now, you said, wouldn't it have been cool if the Pope made him a cardinal? Wouldn't it have been cool if the Pope made him a cardinal? What if the Pope wanted to make him a cardinal, but the Pope was vexed he didn't get on the plane? You think the Pope might have been, you think the Pope might have wanted Bishop Alvarez to leave Nicaragua? Oh, I, I don't think there's any question that certainly the Holy See, at an institutional level, wants him on the plane and out of there. They wouldn't have made the, I mean, they understood that they couldn't be seen to be saying, we are ordering you to abandon your see and go into exile. They, they can't do that. But they were doing their best to say, why don't you pick door number one? Look how shiny it is. Um, it would not surprise me if he was a, a so-called periphery pick in the in the works and in the end he didn't get on the plane well, and they went, well sure the holy see i mean how I, I don't want this to just be like well the holy see thinks that because they don't have a spiritual perspective there has to be more than that when you say i want i think the holy see wanted him to get on the plane i understand Look, why the okay, holy see so the situation in nicaragua is extremely why difficult the holy see would want to I understand why the Holy See would want to sign the China deal. I understand why the Holy See would want to say, look, we don't want to see Christian families, everyday ordinary Catholics in China, one, suffer disunity with the church, two, not have shepherds, three, the possibility of extreme persecution, and therefore we're going to try to make a deal. But if this bishop is really giving, making an evangelical witness towards what, sh what might be considered the ordinary end of the Christian life, which is martyrdom— what what would make you think that the Holy See would not would have some motivation to see him not do that or not want that? Well, because the, and we've through Edgar we've reported on this somewhat extensively that this is you know Alvarez is being personally heroic and a courageous witness for his people against his government and drawing tons of international attention to something that would otherwise be I think pretty much ignored certainly in the secular press. Um, but he's also complicating matters considerably with, for the church in Nicaragua, especially the Holy See Trinity, because, you know, the, the last papal nuncio to Nicaragua was expelled as a persona non grata. Um, you know, we've had bishops kicked out of the country. We've had a lot of clergy expelled from the country. The cardinal, Cardinal Brenes, is still maintained a kind of working relationship with the government, but it's, you know, it's always tenuous. And Bishop Alvarez, you know, I, I think there's probably a sense in and around the Holy See that like, okay, you made your point. Um, but if we're going to make any kind of progress here, you're, you're standing right in the middle of this conversation. And it's hard for us to negotiate around the reality that we have a diocesan bishop in prison. It would be much more convenient for the diplomatic process if you weren't there. And, you know, you say, okay, fine, but why wouldn't you want to reward it? And yeah, I it, look at the theoretical level. I agree with you. Cardinals get the red hat, and it is red because it is supposed to symbolize their willingness to embrace martyrdom for the faith. Now, I let's be honest, I don't think that that is foremost on the minds of most of them when they receive the red hat. Oh, but that, sure. I, I think it is because I think they, many of them think romantically, yes, I'm totally willing to be a martyr for the faith. I would totally be willing to do that. I'm not saying they put themselves in a situation where that might be possible, but I think lots of cardinals like to have the self-conception that they are the possibility of the martyrdom class. I'd say I'd put the number of those at half at best. Maybe you think I'm being unfair. 
That's just my. I, that's I, just I'm my reason. Something. I'm not saying something like laudatory here. I'm saying. Many no, I understand. Who, I'm saying I don't think. I think fully half of people when they get don't even consider that angle. They're just like, oh boy, okay, you know, getting getting up there. I mean, I, I don't get me wrong. I don't think they're all just like, oh yes, fancy clothes. I think that they're, you know, they they feel the weight of the office and the prominence and everything else. But I think actual practical martyrdom is pretty far from their mind when they take it. For most of them, I mean, there are exceptions. Cardinal Bow, for example, you know, someone like that. Anyway, um, so I, I think. It's entirely possible that they'd say, look, this guy goes into exile. We can make him a cardinal. We can reinforce that, you know, he's done this courageous, heroic witness for his people. He's been expelled from his country. He's a cardinal in exile. He's, you know, that, that, that's all good. And at the same time, he's not actually on the ground in prison gumming up the diplomatic process. I could see how that would be a possible plan they had in mind and i could see how they were gonna you know might have thought the holy father might have thought well i'm not making a john fisher because famously you know the pope sent john fisher the red hat because he was in prison and the response of henry the eighth was well you can send him the hat but he won't have a head to wear it and you know you don't want to in making him a cardinal in prison i think would almost certainly be an escalating gesture and the holy see especially the secretary of state if nothing, if we have learned nothing else when observing how they've conducted themselves with China, it is that they are extremely cautious and they never escalate whatever the provocation ever. So I, you know, I, I think, you know, again, at the level of theory, do I think Cardinal Alvarez would make a great Cardinal? Yes. Do I think it would be an incredible witness to the true nature of what the cardinalatial state is supposed to be? Absolutely. Do I think it would absolutely double down on all of the sort of box ticking Pope Francis priorities of pastoral, radical pastoral proximity to his people and total witness to the gospel and commitment to the peripheries. The guy's in a supermax for goodness yeah, sake. I mean, you don't yeah. get much more. Right. I agree with all of that, but I, that's never going to fly with the way that Vatican diplomacy is currently conducted ever. But I could see it. Like nope, I could I see that agree. as having I'm, been a thought that like he comes out. If he comes out, then, then we'll make him a Cardinal and, and it'll sort of be like almost we'll try to sweep under the rug that he had this difficult time. Like, we'll try to use it as like, oh, we're all moving forward together in solidarity on Nicaragua, and the Nicaraguans made this sign of good faith and that kind of thing. I, I, I don't think you're wrong. Um, I, I, few strike me as being more appropriate. And I look, I, I'm be honest, there are lacuna in my knowledge of Bishop Alvarez. I, I mean, like, you know... He, he came into our consciousness as a consequence of these things. So I, I mean, hard, I'd be hard pressed to sort of say precisely what his theological positions are or anything like that. With that said, well, he'd fit right into the current College of Cardinals then. <laughs> With that said, few strike me as more appropriately a member of the College of Cardinals today than than he. Indeed, indeed. Okay, so other things that happened while you're away. So the special papal invite list for the October session of the Synod of Bishops came out. And when I called um, and, you, so I was away last week, and I was in I was in the mountains, and um, I had no cell phone service, and I called you roundabout Boulder, which is to say, shortly after I got cell phone service, um, uh, you know, as I was coming home, and uh, you immediately said to me, like, people are surprised that Father Martin was made a delegate to the Synod. How could people possibly be surprised? And I was like, whoa, 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 Father Martin was made a delegate to the Synod? James Martin? James Martin? And um, and you had a very because I hadn't heard anything about it, but you had a very 
uh, strong view about those who were surprised or why it was not surprising that Father Martin, among others, was made a delegate to the Synod. Does, does I, and I still am. I mean, does anyone really think that the guy who's, you know, basically had Pope Francis blurbing his books and, you know, having him in for coffee and he's been in and around other sessions of the Synod, not as a full participating member because they weren't doing that for diocesan clergy or um, people like Jesuit priests then. Uh, you know, you had to be the lay, basically the, the lay brother head of your order to participate in the Synod of Bishops as a lay, as a lay person before. Um, but I mean, is, as close to the previous synodal processes as it has been possible for someone like Father Martin to be, he's been there. The, the Pope basically seems to give him walk-in benefits whenever he's in Rome for something. And, you know, he's always getting letters from the Pope that he posts all over Twitter. And when he's asked questions about, well, did the Pope talk about this? He said, well, I can't say anything except this, you know, I can tell you this, but I can't, I can't talk about that. And I can t- you know, I did, the guy has been playing the game of, you know, look how close I am to Pope Francis for five, six years now. I, mm-hmm. If you had told me, Put together yeah, a list of papal point. invites that are not bishops for the synod. I would have had James Martin top five pick. Like that, I, I that, that seems to be so obvious. But I mean, I think I think um, rather than being surprised by that, like I think what you're saying makes sense totally. But at the same time, I think the appointment of Father Martin as a consultant to the synod, a consultant to the synod, is rather than a sort of immediate kind of uh, cause for surprise. It is rather. Uh, a point for reflection about how much has changed in perhaps 10 years, right? Because if you had told me 10 years ago, Father Martin will be tapped by the Vatican to be a part of an important global consultative process spanning two years, da, da, da. I'd have thought, no, that's that's not true. Father Martin, you know, was doing his thing. And, and I mean, even 10 years ago, Father Martin was doing his thing, but he was doing his thing with far less, you know, with 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 no support from American bishops and with no support from the Holy See because of the concern, the perennial concern, which is raised about Father Martin, namely that his theological approach skirts the line of orthodoxy. And it's interesting. I have heard many people, many practicing Catholics, sort of side B Catholics or other practicing Catholics who are who are gay, who say, you know, the problem with Father Martin's approach to us is that it's patronizing. It proposes to us that there will be a kind of um, change in Catholic doctrine, which is simply not true. And therefore we feel like it's a presentation of of the church, which is meant to be, um, which is meant not to take us, which is meant not to take us seriously, um, or which is meant to sort of lead us on, or, or or something like that, rather than sort of say, okay, you have this experience of identity, and how do you sort of integrate that into your reality while at the same time living in accord with the doctrine of the church, as we all must do with our sexuality and everything else. So my point is, Father Martin may not, as synod consultor, may not be immediate surprise, but he is a really, like, it's a high watermark of how much has changed, or perhaps not a high watermark, but it feels like a deliberative sort of a, a, a mark of just how much has changed in low these past 10 years. W- wouldn't you say? I'm... Uh, you're probably right. And, I, I mean, you're almost certainly right in what you say. I come to this from a slightly different angle, which is, if you told me 10 years ago, I'd have said, Father James who? I I'd never heard of him until I moved back to this country and even then not right away. So I probably first heard of Father Martin when I was, I don't know, 2018, 2019. Um, so it it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to say Father Martin's pick shows how much things have changed in 10 years, because I guess I kind of feel like, well, 
um, he's just he seems to me to be so completely um, his, his he he is a popular figure seems to me to be so completely a creature of the moment. Yes, absolutely. That, um, but I, you know, it's it's not like for me, from my perspective, it wasn't like he was an extant person watching the sort of evolution of the role of Father James Martin over ten years. It's just sort of like, well, you know, there was the sort of first five years of the Francis pontificate, which were things like Metis Udex and you know stuff like that, and then we've gone into the second half or the second five years rather, uh, where we've had you know the synodal process and um, you know stuff like that, and. You know, he seems to me to be so of that moment that I, you know, I, I consider him to have to be bound up with the Francis pontificate in the same way that I would say is a Morris Letizia or the synodal process that I don't view him as, you know, a sort of weather vein, his prominence or whatever is a weather vein of, of the times so much as he's just part of the times that, you know, that's that's how I see him. It's like, you know, can you know, 10 years ago, could you imagine um, the synodal process being inaugurated? No, I couldn't have. I would have found that entirely difficult to understand i would have um, actually i'll tell you something the, i realize that's a, just an example but i'll tell you something i would have viewed the synodal process as we have experienced it as something kind of in continuity with benedict's interesting idea of the court of the gentiles by which i say interesting idea i mean benedict's flop of an idea of something called the court of the gentiles do you remember that whole thing i i remember the appropriation of the term court of the Gentiles, but I don't remember what it was about. Benedict had this idea that he was going to encourage sort of cultural um, collaboration and unity and fraternity in Europe by these kind of, I guess, events, these sort of festivals of, of, um, of, of culture and, intellectual engagement in a certain sense you know what um, you know what the Rimini gathering is no but is this all from the time when Benedict was palling around with Oriana Falacci and all those people I don't know who that is oh she's an Italian um, scholar an atheist probably it's it's a very CL and she idea, left her right? entire library to Benedict and, it's a very community and liberation idea like you know the Rimini encounter is meant to be this um global gathering of people who are not just Catholics. It's a Catholic thing because it's CL, but it's, it's meant to be this thing of like sort of cultural and human fraternity. And then the New York encounter, which is the CL thing in the United States is supposed to be the same. Like in my experience, everybody there is Catholic, but it's important to say this is not like the speakers who are invited are not all Catholics. There are people from sort of all walks of life who are generally put on panels with Catholics to dialogue about their particular view of stuff in accord with Catholics. And it's all very interesting. Um, but I think the court of the Gentiles idea was supposed to be the same thing that Benedict would spur these kind of cultural happenings, if you will. Um, it was a very sort of it was Benedict's sort of sixties idea, uh, in which um, well, people, people forget that Benedict was an incredible hippie when he was yeah, just Father Ratzinger. This is a big sort of his hippieish or sort of Europeanish idea, in which people would get together and and. Much like Pius the Twelfth, the legend of their conservatism is way oversold. Yeah, but they are exactly. in fact liberal radicals when you you know place them correctly in their in their context and sort of the church would be in these engagements these dialectical engagements with art and drama and music and conversation with with european secular liberals and um and i would have viewed and it, it never really took off i mean i'm not it just i don't know what would have happened in the court of the gentiles but it just never really took off 
But I, in a certain sense... Um, you see the synodality as a similar thing where people who aren't Catholic are invited into the... <laughs> being kind of in continuity with that, right? Now, the difference is that when Benedict had this idea, everybody was sort of like, well, okay, you know, whatever, cool. And lots of people were like, yes, wonderful, wonderful, Holy Father, because people took such pains, I think, to be, you know, kind about it. But but I think a lot of people were probably skeptical of it. It was not, I don't think, the court of the Gentiles, I do not think, was in the same way a loyalty to Heston, which everyone sort of pretended that Gentilism was an, an incredibly sort of important mode of Christianity that we'd been missing for the past 2,000 years, and the court of the Gentiles was this important thing that we had. It didn't take on all of the sort of political significance that the because the Holy Spirit wasn't you know. personally speaking through Benedict when he <laughs> I mean, it didn't inaugurated take on the kind the of right. I mean, it was just Benedict's idea, and it wasn't, in my view, a particularly good one. Wasn't um, that fun? Do you remember that when popes could just have ideas that they were they were their own, and they weren't each and every one of them a private revelation that we were regarded, that, you know, we were absolutely required to treat as though it was coming down the mountain carved I in stone? Do listen, and I got to tell you something. After these messages, will be. Right back. I remember that jingle. This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Seton Home Study School, incorporating the Catholic faith into everything they do, and a longtime friend of the Pillar Podcast. We love the people at Seton. We're glad to have them back as our sponsors. They offer, and we want to tell you about this this week, single course enrollments for people who only want to take a course and not their entire program. Even students enrolled in public schools can benefit from enrolling in their religion courses, even adults. If you just want to learn more about the faith and might find a high school level theology course, for example, on something like understanding the scriptures or the early church fathers, interesting and fun and challenging. You can do that with Seton. Seton helps to provide parents with everything that they need to be successful teaching their children at home. They offer detailed daily lesson plans and academic counselors standing by. Seton is an accredited school with more than 15,000 students. And in addition to offering a kind of full school enrollment as their core idea, Seton also sells all the books they publish individuals so parents can just buy something like an English book or a theology book to, to sort of supplement their other educational materials or to improve their grammar skills or to in other ways, you know, kind of um, help. Seton believes that parents are the primary educators of their children and wants to use the resources they have to empower parents towards that end. Seton also offers tuition at a fraction of the cost of most other Catholic schools. They want to make it available to everyone, even rural areas that can't support bricks and mortar schools. They're a nonprofit which does everything possible to keep costs down, keep tuition low, keep things affordable, keep the family's needs first. So if you want to see if Seton could be right for you and your family, you can go to their website, setonhome.org. There's a beginner's guide to Seton there that you can sign up for. It's right on the front page. And, you know, tell them that you heard about them and, and here listen, on the Pillar I Podcast. I just want to say this. Please. If you listen to this po to this podcast and you hear periodically our ads for Seton and you think, yeah, that sounds cool, but I don't homeschool my kids or that sounds cool, but I don't have kids or whatever. I think uh, one of the things that we've been trying to drive home that I just think is so interesting about Seton is, yeah, their main product is effectively or their main offering, their main service is effectively to help parents to more uh, easily navigate the, the challenge of homeschooling. But that's not the only thing they do. You really can check out, take these courses. It's an interesting way to kind of bone up on a new thing. Um, if you are a homeschooler and you don't think the whole of the Seton thing is right for you, buy some of their books. Or if you just want to supplement what your kids are doing, or you just want a good set of resources on history or literature, 
um, or theology from a Catholic perspective, like, don't think that this commercial isn't for you if you don't have kids who you're thinking about homeschooling, because Seton offers so much more than that. And again, do us a favor, um, go to seatonhome.org, sign up to get the free beginner's guide to Seton, and then tell them that you heard about it from us, from JD and Ed at the Pillar Podcast, because that um, helps to cement our long-term friendship with Seton. So if nothing else, do us a favor, go to seatonhome.org and check out the beginner guide to Seton. We're back, Ed. Hi. Hi. Okay. Um, you have all been right. walking me through. You've been walking me through Pope Francis's very big week. We talked about Bishop Orlando Alvarez. Uh, we have been talking about Father Martin and the Synod. Uh, keep going. Keep talking to me. We will, we will keep talking, and um, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit because I gotta I gotta go in fifteen minutes, sadly. But um, the other thing that happened was, of course, Pope Francis named all these new cardinals, and um, you know we've we've had some really great profiles and interviews uh with with two um of the or sorry i should say one with and one of uh two of the new batches of cardinals i think we're gonna have some more coming through in the next week but there are some picks in there you know everyone's kind of focused on the you know well why this guy i want to talk about one in particular that grabbed my eye and i was really waiting to see i didn't know when the next consistory list was going to come out or anything but i was curious to see if this guy would be on it when it didn't he was so we talked for a minute about the bishop of hong kong bishop stephen chow soon to be cardinal chow soon to be cardinal chow yeah soon to be cardinal Cardinal elect chow but we're not going to say that we're not going to say that because it's a silly thing and um everybody knows so i'm fascinated that cardinal chow is getting a red hat because um not because I think it's outrageous or anything, but it was a massive open question for me in looking at the sort of chessboard of the Vatican, Beijing, and Hong Kong, and where he sits on it and how he's been conducting himself. And it seemed to me that the politics of making him a cardinal would be very, very complicated. Not not just to the degree of, well, they can't or they must, but just it's very complicated. And how is this all going to be read? Because you know, Bishop Chow, okay, he's he's got some some aspects of his theology and ecclesiology are are not ones that I would necessarily be comfortable with. Um, but putting that to one side, looking at this purely in terms of the relationship between China and the Vatican and the place of Hong Kong in that, he's been a very, very interesting figure since his appointment. He came out of the gate uh, as the new bishop, freely admitting that he had attended what were effectively illegal, what the government considered to be illegal protests, what everyone there considered to be a traditional of some decades standing prayer vigil for the victims of the Tiananmen Square massacre. Um, Since then, he has given several interviews in which he has spoken by Hong Kong standards, current Hong Kong standards anyway, as the sort of ratcheting up of the um, cutting off of human rights and civil liberties there has been going on. He's given what I would consider to be pretty forthright interviews on um, the nature of human dignity and civil liberties and how that is part of the, you know, the fundamentals of Catholic social teaching and, you know, the place of the church in championing those and maintaining a free and, you know, good faith engagement with the government and not being sort of openly adversarial, but at the same time saying we are not going to kowtow and knuckle under and doing all of this while in a very, very delicate position, legally speaking, in Hong Kong, because of course, the way things work there, and this isn't a function if anyone jumps to that conclusion of the Chinese government, this is, so far as I'm aware, set up of the of the British colonial rule, that all the Catholic parish schools and stuff, that's all on publicly owned land. 
like the church is a tenant. Mm-hmm. So in theory, the government could just shut it all down if it wanted to, could just cancel the leases and kick everybody out. So he's really operating in a, in a very delicate space. And he's doing so in a way that I think is more bold than I would have expected at the time of his appointment. And at the same time, he, you know, he made this trip to Beijing earlier this year to visit his counterpart there, who is the president of the, of the renegade, not Catholic Bishops Conference of China, the sort of you know, alternative shadow Communist Party-sponsored Bishops Conference that the Vatican doesn't recognize. And at a time when, you know, China continues to appoint all of these bishops without the Holy See's input or approval, in some cases, they've like tried to create whole new dioceses that aren't recognized by the Vatican. All this is going on. And I think that has helped give them cover, give the Holy Father cover to say, okay, no, Chow is getting a red hat. It might have been a little inflammatory as things were getting worse in Hong Kong. And he was speaking out a little bit more than most people would have anticipated a red hat. Um absent any other context, but with China continuing to like monkey around with diocese on the mainland, I think the Holy See thought like, you know, no, we can get away with this. If the Pope wants to do it, this is, this is a reasonable response. This, you know, the sort of diplomatic exchange and face-off that's going on there. I, I'm terrifically interested. So JD, I guess my question for you is this. Um, when Bishop Chow arrives at a conclave, whenever it may be, is he going to be there? Are, other, are the other cardinals going to see him and talk to him? And do you think he's going to be able to operate as Bishop Stephen Chow, SJ, or sorry, Cardinal Stephen Chow, SJ, who has these, you know, quite progressive theological and ecclesiological ideas? Or is he going to be there primarily as a witness to what's going on for the church in China and Hong Kong? What do you think, you know, leaving aside yeah, trying to I guess mean, at the Holy really, Father's, I mean, you know, reasons for appointing whole, him? But that, like, that points to the really interesting thing about Bishop Chow's entire appointment, because, you know, I think Bishop Chow, at the time he was made the Bishop of Hong Kong, appreciated the situation of Hong Kong and tried his best to sort of say that he appreciated the threats to religious liberty that the Christians of Hong Kong face and that the Christians of mainline China face. And I think Bishop Chow appreciates that he is in a certain way, and all the more so now, a global spokesman for persecuted Christians in China. And I have talked to members of his own province, men who've lived with him, who have said that in their view, Bishop Chow is not sort of dispositionally opposed to Beijing, and certainly not in the, or like perceiving himself at odds with Beijing, and certainly not in the no, same No, he considers himself a Chinese Catholic. Yeah, right, exactly. And he has tried to sort of so reconciliation between he has tried to do these symbolic things like traveling to Beijing and all this to um, to show that there's no discordance between being a Catholic and being um, and being a, a, a faithful citizen of China so I I think that I mean like I in an interesting question that I or not an interesting question but certainly people have raised the question like will Bishop Chow be directed by Beijing in the conclave, and um, you oh, know, and no, that's, I, that's historically like it's not historically unprecedented for um, cardinals from Eastern Bloc countries to have certainly faced pressure during the time of a conclave about what will happen, you know, from from their governments, you know, and to have faced certain expectations or certain warnings from their governments. We're well aware of the fact that that has happened in totalitarian regimes before, and we can think of the ways in which cardinals in the medieval era were certainly faced strong encouragement from their sovereigns to. Exercise, some of the sovereigns had an actual legal veto yeah, right. over their exactly that's oh. right so you know this isn't this, this kind of influence is not limited to totalitarian regime totalitarian regimes of, of late capitalism or something like that but um 
the Lake Cavalier, I mean. But um, I don't think that Bishop Chow's... I don't think Bishop Chow perceives that his interests are disaligned from Beijing. You know, I think he would like to say that he'd like the CCPA to be... Or he'd like the Chinese Communist Party to be, you know, more uh, supportive of religion. But I, I don't think he would see the kind of discordance between his faith and his Chinese identity or his identity as a... Uh, contemporary citizen of China that Zen saw. And so this notion of like, well, will will Beijing be telling him what to do, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think there's any, Beijing would perceive any need for that because I think they perceive him as being someone who would, generally speaking, have a similar set of sympathies. And whether that's entirely right or wrong, I don't know. But my sense is that that would be the perception of things. Hmm. Does that seem unreasonable to you? No, I don't think it seems unreasonable. I I, I think that 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 may be a perfectly legitimate read on him. Um, no, I, I think that that could very well be true. Huh? Was there any other um, of the of the new guys? Was there anyone else on the list that struck you particularly? For me, probably the most interesting appointment is uh, Bishop Stephen Amayu of the Archdiocese of Juba. Um, Ed, do you remember um, back? Actually, this was in another. He hasn't been someone that we've heard of in a little while, but um, you might remember that a few years ago we covered his appointment to become the Archbishop of Juba. This was like in late 2019 and early 2020, when um, there was pushback in Juba about his appointment from the um, the Bari ethnic community in South Sudan, who who raised concerns that um, he was not of their tribe. That literally. he was not of their tribe, and 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 actually. The, the, the Bari were split in the way they talked about it. Some of them said our concern about Bishop Amayu is that he's not sufficiently competent for the job. And then uh, some groups said, no, um, Juba is a kind of a Bari place. It's it's the majority Bari population. And so the archbishop should be uh, Bari as well. Um, so uh, there was a lot of back and forth with, you know, some of the leaders of the Bari community saying, no, this isn't about tribalism at all. This is about our perception of his competence and our perception of his being able to to, to lead well. And, and then there were other people who were being a little bit more straightforward to say no, or, or well, there were other people who were presenting a different perspective to say, no, we think that um, the Archbishop of Juba should be from the Bari ethnic group of, of South Sudan. So the reason I bring that up is because... Um, Pope Francis has now made two choices to appoint in Africa people who have been um, criticized, effective, whose appointments have been criticized for their ethnicity, um, and especially for their tribal affiliation effectively. That we don't, you know, when we talk about tribalism in the United States, we do it only metaphorically, right? Like, oh, you know, I, I went on that rant a couple weeks ago about how we shouldn't, we should, you know, be more uh open to sort of not just sort of um reflexive tribalism that becomes partisanship and uh, and of course i was talking metaphorically because i was talking about people who think like us or who share some common affiliations with us in one way or another i wasn't talking about people who are actually part of our tribe that's not a way that we tend to think about divisions political and cultural and social divisions in the world but in sub-saharan africa in many parts of sub-saharan africa knowing the tribe that you come from the people that to which you belong, which is not the same as sort of your political nationality, but something which is which is distinct from that, is 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 important, uh, and is a an important kind of economic and social reality uh, that determines often what you do for a living or who you marry or where you live or all these other things. And 
which has led to a lot of division in the life of the church, the appointment of bishops from various tribes and the division of dioceses and, and, um, and, and Episcopal conferences over tribe and the suggestion from some that really territory, the church in Africa would be better served if dioceses were circumscribed to, um, to tribes rather than territorially circumscribed. And all of this came up actually in the synodal reports from the African continent, which when we, have we heard from friends in Nigeria, for example, where they said this was a big part of the local experience of synodality was addressing yeah. tribalism, literal tribalism, literal tribalism and discussing it and, and discussing it, you know, often in a way that, that recognizes both the sort of deep seated cultural tendency to be, um, to, to, to have a sort of self-identity, which is so tied up with, with, with one's tribe and an ecclesial identity. So, so tied up with one's tribe. And then, uh, you know, in Nigeria, it's not just, um, sort of the Igbo and the Yoruba, the two large tribes, but uh, you know, other tribes and ethnic groups, there are hundreds of tribes and ethnic groups just, ethnic groups just in Nigeria. And in South Sudan, there are dozens and dozens of, of ethnic groups and, and that matters. But the Pope has been, I think, consistently, symbolically deliberative about saying that he, he wants to overcome or he wants to challenge the tribalism which exists in the church in Africa and the way in which it has been you know, more than once in his own, um, uh, in his own appointments in Africa, kind of an obstructionist issue. So I think that appointment, that appointment of Bishop Amayu is really, um, is really interesting and important one whose symbolism we might, we might misunderstand. We might think, oh, he's appointing somebody from South Sudan, uh, you know, just because South Sudan. Because he likes South country. Sudan, he went there and he's he done liked, the peace he went thing. There, and... He just met the guy and all that. And, and, and maybe he met the guy and was tremendously impressed with him. You know, I suspect that's probably true. Um, but it's also true that 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 appointment carries with it a rebuke or a repudiation of the tribalistic tendencies that have really plagued the church in a lot of parts of sub-Saharan Africa. That that is going to be very very interesting to see play out. Um, I, I think you're right, and I think I, what I like about the idea of you know because that's what we're talking about really um, of a cardinal like him with his background and as you say with his experience and also with the sort of fairly obvious um, implication in his appointment with regards to tribalism in, in parts of the church in Africa is I, I think that's going to be such an important perspective to hopefully hear loudly at a future conclave that, you know, so much of, and, and this has been my major criticism of, of the synodal process, um, at least as it's played out in the sort of instrumentorum laboris and the working documents is that it is such a, it carries such a flavor of Western European priorities and experience and seems to, you know, have been written predominantly by groups of Western Europeans with a very Western European mindset. And I would say more than a hint of a Western European progressive agenda. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but to have a cardinal who can speak to not only the, the positive reality of the church in Africa, which is, you know, huge the, but the sometimes is, we have a very reductive way of talking about the church we do. in africa where we only talk we talk about the church in africa is the future of the church which is true uh, in terms of demographic growth and things like that but that that also means that there are going to be challenges in that church as it grows and yes. as it matures and we know there are kind of safe environment challenges in sub-saharan africa and vocational discernment challenges and and then these challenges which are completely really unfamiliar to our reality yeah and i think to have the church in africa not um to have the church in Africa, as you say, not be subjected to this sort of reductionist impression, but to have someone who can 
I mean, I've, you've talked to him, I haven't. Um, but I would hope speak eloquently to the fullness of the reality of the church in Africa, not just the things that make it great and growing and, you know, all of the other things that, that we know it to be, but also the, the real problems that are in it. And to say, you know, when we're talking about often, as we do, when people reference the church in Africa, say, oh, we should learn from the church in Africa about evangelization, about how to have, you know, about openness to life, about all this. And, and that's true. But I think often um, the, the struggles of the church in Africa can be as instructive for the rest of the church because they are in a sense, I think somehow um, I'm struggling for the right word here. Uh, But there's a, there's a huge difference between sort of, you know, carping at the margins in dioceses in the United States about, Oh, we want women priests, which is, you know, it's got nothing to do with the, the synodal process or anything else, at least according to Pope Francis and people saying, no, we need to talk about synodality. We need to talk about how, people from warring ethnic groups can understand their Catholicism and their Christianity and the dignity of their baptism and the radical equality of the faithful, that that supersedes their tribal identity. Like that's a real thing. That's a thing worth talking about. That's That's a human experience that the church can speak into that the gospel can address. And I think to have those kinds of priorities um, highlighted and given a better place of prominence in the church, either in the synodal process or in a conclave, I, I think that can only be to the good. Yeah, I think that's right. I guess what I'm saying is the church in Africa got real problems as well as really good things. And I'm, I'm for more reality in the church, in what we just, you know, a little less of the sort of ephemeral noise um, and navel gazing and a little more of the, of the real realities. Well, I've been grateful for the reality in this conversation, my friend, and I wish we could have more of it. Well, I mean, you know, you got my number, buddy. You can call me anytime. <laughs> I will, but and uh, would we you will... let's do the, let's do a thing though? Um, I, I, you mentioned that you wanted to play a game today, and I haven't written a game. Um, and and so, okay. Um, how about a quick? Do we have, do you have five minutes? You don't have to if you don't. I've got three minutes. You got three minutes. Well, okay. Let's save this for next week. We'll trail next week. We are going to do a fantasy C nine. Council of Cardinals draft. Yes, we are. Because out of the new nobody, Cardinals and out of the current College of Cardinals, who are we yeah. going to choose for the C9? Who are we, who we choose for our own personal discussion. C9? We're going to lead off with it, actually. I think it's going to be a great conversation. Yeah. I'm looking forward to having it. We're going to do that. And in the meantime, Ed, um, listen, if you uh, didn't know, this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Seton Home Study School. To find out if Seton is right for your family, check it out at setonhome.org. And of course, the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and J.D. Production. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. I'm your host, uh, J.D. Flynn, and my podcasting partner is Ed Condon. And we will be back for draft day. 